0: Welcome to The Dinner Party. This is
1: your icebreaker. A baby seal walks into a club. That's my favorite joke.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, And from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You
0: just got a kind of macabre joke from the kind of macabre director Tim Burton that'll help break
2: the ice. Yeah.
0: His film Frank and Weenie is the first film ever with the name Weenie in the title to be nominated for an Oscar.
2: <laughs> Except, well, Aunt Weenie Hall, the Woody Allen film. Yeah.
0: Right. Uh, later we'll speak with actor William H. Macy, star of the Showtime series Shameless,
2: which just started its third season. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Defense Secretary has lifted a ban on women fighting in the front lines.
3: Manti Teo now admits he briefly lied to the press and the public. President Obama sworn into a second term.
2: Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with John Letzing. He is a reporter with the Dow Jones Newswire and the Wall Street Journal. John, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this weekend?
4: Well, there's a, there's a brand new player in the game of uh, asteroid mining.
2: But that's a game?
4: <laughs> that is well it's is a, that a
0: video game?
4: <laughs> it sounds like a game. It's actually it seems to be something that rich guys are deciding to start businesses around. All right. Okay. So there's a brand new company and it sounds very cool. It's called Deep Space Industries. All right. I'm I'm in.
0: What could possibly that's, go yeah. wrong? <laughs>
4: <laughs> what did they do? They are proposing well, I should say they are seeking sponsors. I just want to put that out there, to basically
2: fly up to asteroids and mine for precious materials. On asteroids. Yes. So there's wow. so there's enough precious metals on these asteroids to make it worth sending a rocket ship to apparently.
4: They they're saying one single asteroid up there has ninety five point eight trillion dollars with the T of, of <sighs> mineral wealth contained inside of what? it.
0: What? But wait a second. Would the metals still be precious if we have $95 trillion worth of them? Exactly. It'll just be like sawdust. <laughs>
2: that's, we'll just sprinkle it on our cereal. Yeah, they should just go very slowly. <laughs> I would think so. But if they were to corner that much wealth, that would be terrifying, right? Like this one company could control the world.
4: <laughs> yeah. they. I mean, space apparently is supposed to be a sort of global commons, but I'm not sure how mm-hmm. that's really going to work in practice. I don't know if that's like the common space of my co-op in college. <laughs> It's dominated by the 40-year-old
2: undergrad with bad hygiene. I don't know. That would be Deep Space Industries could be the 40-year-old undergrad of the cosmos. I'm sure
0: he dreamt up this idea, that same undergrad. Exactly. <laughs> That's
2: Always knew that guy was going places. John Ledsing, thanks so much for the big small talk. Sure. Thanks for having me. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a tree, but instead of groundwater, its mighty roots suck up booze. Won't be mighty for long. First, the history part. This week back in 1908, the Sullivan Ordinance passed.
0: Most folks at your dinner party won't know what it was. Mm. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to.
5: Before there were non-smoking laws, there was male chauvinism. Case in point, the Sullivan Ordinance. Named after the guy who dreamed it up, New York City Alderman Tim Sullivan, it made it illegal for women to smoke in public because it was, quote, unladylike. Not everyone agreed. At a hearing the day the law passed, a doctor said he'd rather see a law forbidding men from smoking near a woman. And a bunch of actresses said they'd prefer a speed limit for cars. That way, gals wouldn't have to run across the street which they found unladylike. Those ideas didn't fly, but the Sullivan ordinance did. And the next day, a cop arrested one Katie Mulcahy for lighting up. He reportedly exclaimed, Madam, you mustn't. What would Alderman Sullivan say? To which she replied, Well, I am, and I don't know. Katie couldn't afford the five buck fine, so the court tossed her in jail, which everyone suddenly realized was kind of ungentlemanly. Two weeks later, the Sullivan Ordinance was revoked, and women were free to get just as many smoking-related diseases as men. Hooray?
2: So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm on the line with Lauren Davis. She is a bartender at... Hi, she is a bartender at Rain's Law Room in New York City. Apropos for a tale about a New York City law. And by the way, was this is Rain's Law Room a former courtroom or something?
6: No, no. Um, it's based on a pre-prohibition law that prohibited people to drink on Sundays. Ah. Yeah. So we kind of focus on pre-prohibition drinks there, and it's kind of a speakeasy. You have to ring a doorbell to get in. It's very hidden. There's no sign.
2: I guess there would have been some sort of version of that for ladies who wanted to smoke had the Sullivan Ordinance continued to be yes, enforced.
6: definitely. So
2: this is perfect. What cocktail did the story of the Sullivan Ordinance inspire you to make?
6: Well, I uh, named my cocktail The Sullivan. Of course. I wanted to make something like floral and elegant and very feminine. But also have like a little bit of smoke to it. All right, a little bit of fire. That
2: seems all <laughs> too appropriate. Although I'm glad that you're you're going to decide what is feminine and not me. It's a <laughs> sign of progress in America.
6: Exactly. <laughs> uh, so
2: what is in this thing?
6: So um, it's a half ounce of Tempest Fugate Liquor de violet. It's like a cream de violet.
2: Okay, so literally floral then violet.
6: Yeah, yeah, very floral. It's just like beautiful rose color. Okay. Um, it's three quarter ounce of Dolan Blanc Vermouth. And then two ounces of Dorothy Parker gin. It's from the New York Distilling Company, and I thought it was very perfect yeah. for this cocktail.
2: She uh, definitely had the wit about her, kind of like the, the lady that was arrested.
6: Exactly. And then um, you stir the cocktail, pour it into a coop. Coop glass. And you use a flamed grapefruit twist.
2: Which means that you set it on fire?
6: Yep. Adds a little bit of fire to the drink.
2: Just a tiny little bit. That's lovely. Uh-huh. But I, I was thinking that maybe you should specify that when you make the drink for men you should put something really bad in it just to show
6: us (laughs) right punishment
2: and brendan i've mentioned this before on the show but it bears repeating okay i remember when i was in high school there was actually a smoking area for the students you would see it would be like zero degrees outside they'd be out there between classes lighting up but of course
0: you you went to school in prison (laughs) so
2: (laughs) felt like it sometimes yeah Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we have a cocktail area on our website. Check out all our recipes at dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've had a drink, but we still can't call this a dinner party until we've got some music to play. For that, we turn to acclaimed singer-songwriter
0: Ron Sexsmith. Tunes from his dozen albums have been covered by everyone from Rod Stewart to Feist. His new album comes out next week. Here he is to suggest tunes from other
7: musicians hi there this is ron sexsmith i have a new album coming out called forever endeavor and uh, you're listening to my dinner party soundtrack this first song is kind of a new discovery for me but it's an old record it's by a a jazz trombonist named jack teagarden made in 1962 and it was called cottage for sale i think this song sets a very welcoming mood you know because you, you hear the great piano you know and then the trombone comes in and and and, and then he starts to sing he had this very kind of conversational informal way of singing that really appealed to me it almost sounded like he was drunk or something you know His trombone playing is sensational as well. It's very, I mean, you know, I guess they call him the father of jazz trombone. You know, he was the first one to play it with some kind of dignity, you know, because I guess apparently when he was a kid, he, he saw clowns playing it in a circus, and he didn't want to do all that slidey, humorous kind of stuff. I don't know, when I first heard it, I just thought, okay, I, I'm in, you know, I, I, I want this in my life. So uh, I guess the next song I'm going to play is uh, by Ry Cooter uh, from his album My Flathead and it's called uh, My Dwarf Is Getting Tired. <laughs> You might think it would be this really, I don't know, funny song or something, but it's actually a very moving song about going to pay his respects to a friend who, at the time of his death, he was working as Mickey Mouse at Disneyland and he had, you know, died in his, it says, uh, he died in his rubber suit out on the street of dreams, you know.
3: Mobile home in Anaheim it's double
5: wide. it's new, it's clean
7: He paints this picture that's just really funny and sad and and sweet of, of a so bygone era, you know, that we'll probably never see again, you know.
5: We had a long run together Life you can't
7: compare You know, a lot of everybody's a fan of Raikuta's singing voice but I've always enjoyed the way he sang and on this song in particular you know, and as usual, the guitaring is incredible. He's just one of those just really soulful players, and it feels like an appropriate song for this dinner party as well. This this next song is by a, a, an English songwriter by the name of Bill Fay, who just released an album recently, and it was his, I believe his first album in like 30 or 40 years. It's called, There is a Valley. He's a singer, songwriter, but who plays the piano. He must be, I guess I would say, late 60s or something like that. And, and he has some really sort of nice piano moments. It's just, it's hard to put into words. It's, it's just great to hear a song that kind of deals with spiritual things.
5: There is a valley where the trees stand tall
1: and an icy wind
7: blows beautiful language
1: trees don't speak but they speak to each other other
7: people long ago lines like that it's like this untold history that existed before man came along or something it's almost in a weird way it's like something I might have sung back in Sunday school when I was a kid and the fury of that moment
1: that felt, but could only silently look upon
7: and, and singing stuff that I'm not getting from a lot of new musicians or a lot of new singer-songwriters, you know, like singing stuff that appealed to me as a guy who's facing 50 next year, you know. I guess I'm gravitating towards the, that kind of music. I, I guess I always have, really, you know. If I was asked to pick a song for my uh, upcoming album, I would have to pick Nowhere Is. It's one of my favorites on the record, and I, and I really love the arrangement. So I ho- uh, so here it is, nowhere is. The shadow falls across my mind, and the silence comes over me when I look behind. And I think of how blue I might be, were it not for this love I found. I'd be lost to see I know where I've been there and now I know where nowhere is
0: Ron Sexsmith, his new album Forever Endeavor, Comes out February 5th.
2: And uh, since this is radio, we should point out Endeavour in that title is spelled with a U because Ron is from Canada. And that is how (laughs) citizens of the British Commonwealth spell it. For some reason. Well, it's kind of a gang sign from a former empire, (laughs) how I think of it.
0: They no longer have Hong Kong, but they'll always have that U.
1: Forever. (laughs) Endeavour.
0: All right, folks, coming up, the words
2: actor William H. Macy prefers not to hear
1: some variation on you're
2: so awful he's a little sensitive when The Dinner Party continues.
0: Welcome back to The Dinner Party,
2: the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Newham. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, New York Times cocktail columnist Rosie Schapp answers your etiquette questions. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor.
0: And this week, it's actor William H. Macy. He's perhaps best known for his role in the movie Fargo. It earned him an Oscar nomination. Of course. He also starred in Pleasantville, Magnolia, and Seabiscuit, for which he got a Golden Globe nomination. That's a lot of nominations. He's not a bad actor. (laughs) Uh, Nowadays, he stars in the Showtime series Shameless, a comedy drama about a poor family in Chicago's Southside. In it, he plays the family patriarch Frank Gallagher, a selfish, alcoholic narcissist. When I spoke with William this week, I asked if playing Frank was as fun as it looks.
1: Oh, yes. (laughs) It's a dream job. And I love playing this despicable character. Is it easy or hard to play a drunk deadbeat? Do you know, this season more than any other, something has come up, which is when I'm acting the thing, when we're doing it, it's just great fun. It's a romp. He's Mm -hmm. shameless. He's inebriated to some degree all the time. And um, I just can't tell you how fun it is to be so far outside the box. It's it's hard for me to do something that's inappropriate. That's true. <laughs> um, but I watched the second episode last night, and uh, I kind of got my feelings hurt. <laughs> he's I'll such an, well. He's such an awful guy. You know, I when you're acting it, it's great fun. And then when you sit back months later and watch it, he's so despicable. It. it makes me feel sad
0: it can make even the viewer feel sad there's parts of this season where at one point he pretends his son has cancer so he can try to score free tickets to a basketball game mm. which he can sell
5: cancer how did i get cancer
1: you must have caught it from Grammy's son I, if she had known that she had the contagious kind i don't think she would have spent so much time with you in the basement cooking meth
5: am i going to die
0: I hope not. You have kids yourself. Is that kind of when you watch that? Do you kind of get angry at the character that you
1: that you portrayed? Yeah, and I think it's probably in the DNA of all actors that we all want to be the hero in the piece. And uh, mm. uh, there are times when Frank is sort of a glorious antihero, and I love that. It's a, a more complex. Role than I ever thought it was going to be.
0: This show deals with the recession in a pretty direct way. Mm -hmm. Uh, jobs are scarce, the city's crumbling. Uh, yet I imagine in Hollywood, people are kind of insulated from people like the Gallaghers. Mm -hmm. As an actor asked to play someone from kind of a different part of society, how do you prep for that, and how do you make sure you're being authentic?
1: I didn't prep for the character, per se. And, uh, that's sort of been my M.O., my entire career. I don't know mm. if it's right or wrong, but that's what I do. Uh, my thesis has always been every bit of information I need, with few and rare exam- exceptions, is on the page.
0: You don't research the characters. Is that like non-method acting? What What, what is the...?
1: Well, I say no. It's a debatable point. And I start talking about acting technique and the history of it, and I can literally see the will to live drain out of people. <laughs>
0: this but, is public radio. Don't all right. Don't underestimate
1: it. We say method, we think Stanislavski, and in this country it was Sandy Meisner or, or uh, Lee Strasberg, and there were two schools of thought, and one of them is how are you feeling about, the, about what's going on on stage, and the other one is what are you doing about what's going on on stage. Yeah. I subscribe to the second... Uh, what are you doing? And uh, let how you're feeling about it, to a large extent, go hang. It will take care of itself. So to that extent, there are times when I think you need to learn skills and learn about a a, a lifestyle that you don't know about. If you're going to play a doctor, you have to learn how to scrub properly. Things like that, that I think are legitimate. But Mm. the whole notion of becoming the character... I've always found confusing i I don't understand it, and the few actors that I've worked with who take that to the max and really try to become the characters are just impossible to be around <laughs> they they're <laughs> mentally ill i you know the the scene's <laughs> over, and they're still doing some bizarre thing when you really just want to dish and talk about what's for lunch.
0: Yeah, you're like, Mr. Lincoln, can we just go have some quinoa at the (laughs) the catering table?
1: (laughs) It strikes me as silly. Uh, Having said that, I thought Daniel D. Lewis was just (laughs) magnificent. He was
0: magnificent. He was magnificent. Different strokes. You you, you thought a lot about uh, theater. You you, uh, started a theater group with David Mamet in Chicago back in 1972.
1: Mm -hmm. Is that right? David was my teacher. I met him in college, and he was just barely out of school, and he taught an acting class. Hmm. and my friend Stephen Schachter. The three of us moved to Chicago, and so off we went, and we started the St. Nicholas Theatre, and we yeah. created a very successful theatre that ran for about 10 or 12 years. Steppenwolf took over that building, which I, I put that theatre in with my bare hands. Wow. I'm a bit of a carpenter.
0: You were actually featured on uh, the cover of, of woodwork, a Woodworking magazine, isn't that correct?
1: That's true. It's one of my only covers. They were gonna do it the month before, but a, a power planer made it instead of me.
0: <laughs> well, you can't blame them no. for a power planer. I mean, that's impressive. Look, we have two standard questions on our show, and the first one is, what question are
1: you tired of being asked? The whole notion of, uh, Frank is so despicable. How despicable do you think he's going to get? Some variation on, you're so awful. Is there yeah. nothing you won't do? And, <laughs> um, kind of hurts my feelings. I say, yeah, come on. <laughs> Leave me alone. I think he's, he's funny. Big. I like the guy. <laughs> Who are you going to hang out with? My character's fun. I grab life and
0: eat it up. That's one way to put it. We have another question that we ask each of our guests, and that is, tell us something we don't know. Um, it can be something about you, or it could be
1: kind of an obscure fact about the world. I might have said this before in an interview, but it never got printed because it's I'm the only one that cares. And it's it's not something that we don't know. It's something we've never thought of. Okay. You know when you're watching television... And at the bottom of the screen, they have all these people run in and jump around, try to get your attention, and announce what's coming next. And it always happens right at some climactic moment.
0: You mean those like those those overlays where they yeah. have
1: the characters from the next show coming up? Yeah. And it <laughs> used to be just a scroll announcing it, but now they have they shrink the character down to so he or she is about a quarter of the screen, and they're leaping around, waving their arms, trying <laughs> to get our attention. It's absurd. Somebody made that decision. <laughs> there was a guy who said. Or a gal who said, I think this is a good idea. I know. Somebody said, that's a good idea. Somebody said, this is what America (laughs) wants.
0: I'm guessing that's not the type of person
1: you'd hang out with, the person who makes that decision. I just want to meet him or her. (laughs) I just want to say, really? Really? (laughs) Look what you've done.
0: No, I think you should find them, and then they'll be in a meeting or at a party, and you just run up to them and interrupt them and say something completely.
1: Or wait till they're giving a speech. And just go up with uh, some cards, you know. I'll be performing in Shameless next weekend.
2: William H. Macy, he stars in Shameless. It airs Sundays on Showtime. And Brendan, I was actually thinking about his non-method approach to acting. Yeah. And it occurs to me that if you are playing characters like Frank, not behaving like them Offset is (laughs) probably the right call. It's probably good for your marriage. It's
7: a good idea.
2: (laughs) You should really only
0: method act when you're playing like Gandhi... Or George Harrison. Sure.
2: Folks, we encourage full immersion into the life of the dinner party. Learn more about us at dinnerpartydownload.org.
1: And now, time
8: to eavesdrop.
2: Eddie Huang is the restaurateur behind New York's popular bun shop, Bauhaus. He also hosts the Vice TV series called Fresh Off the Boat. It's an irreverent take on food and assimilation, much like his new memoir. This week, we overhear him read an
3: excerpt. Yo, what up? This your boy, Eddie Wong. My book, Fresh Off the Boat, drops January 29th, so go support Chinese-Taiwanese-American business. Thank you very much. This chapter is about the first time a white kid invited me to stay over at his crib. I had to ask my mom for permission to go over to Jeff's house. What do his parents do? Doctors. What kind? What kind? Uh, anesthetic? I have not heard of this. Jeff says he gives shots to people so they fall asleep before surgery. After calling several of her sisters and friends, she figured it was a good job and improved. Okay, good job. You make a good friend. My mom was pretty proud of herself. Her plan to have me rub elbows with the children of rich kids was working. When the day finally came, my mom dropped me off. Hi, I'm Jessica. Are you Jeff's mom? Yes, I'm Mrs. Miller, and you must be Eddie. It's so nice to meet you. Jeff talks about you every day. Hey, Jeff. Hey, man. Jeff, go on ahead and take Eddie upstairs. You boys can play video games. We ran upstairs, but I could hear my mom from downstairs. Thank you so much for having Eddie over. He says your husband is a, uh, anesthetics. He gives the shot, right? Well, yeah. He gives people shots or treatment before they go into surgery. Ah, like the Novocaine. I get it all the time at the dentist. Great, well I will see you tomorrow. We pick up Eddie around three. I walked up to Jeff's room. I couldn't believe my eyes. Toys, games, huge television, stuffed animals. It's like living in a Toys R Us. I remember thinking to myself that if I died, I wanted to come back a white man. I literally rolled around in video games, looked at all the GamePro magazines, and then went to the bathroom and wiped with their fancy toilet paper just to see how it felt. When you wash your hands, they had hand towels, so you didn't have to wipe your face with the towel your brother wiped his b- with ten minutes ago. I felt like some wild gremlin child living in Chinese hell after going to their house. By that point, I was ready to convert. But then dinner happened. Chef's mom came out of the kitchen with two bowls. One bowl was filled with goopy orange stuff. I thought they might be little boiled intestines in an orange sauce, which I could get down with. But on closer inspection, they were unlike any intestines I'd ever seen. The other bowl was gray and filled with a fibrous material mixed with bits of celery. I thought to myself, these white people really like mushy food. Jeff started wiping the gray stuff on the bread. <laughs> Jeff and his brothers couldn't get enough, but I was scared. Holy f- that smell. I took a deep breath, clutched my orange juice, and forced myself to take a bite. Right on cue. Gag reflex, boom, went to orange juice. I couldn't hide it anymore. What is that, man? You never had tuna fish sandwiches? No, never. Where'd you get it? At the grocery store. You want to see the can? Okay, but what's the orange stuff? Macaroni and cheese. It's pasta. I didn't know what pasta was, but it was really starting to feel like a dumbass, so I didn't ask. That stuff was so nasty. We never ate cheese and it stunk like feet. I suddenly realized that converting to white wouldn't be so easy. But still, that toilet paper was like silk. I tried to force myself to eat the macaroni and cheese. It came through my nose. I realized no matter how many toys they had, I couldn't cross over. I'd much rather eat Chinese food and split the one good dinosaur with my brother. Macaroni is to Chinamen, as water is to Gremlins, teeth are to soup, and Asian is to American. It just didn't fit. Eddie Wong,
0: reading from his new memoir, Fresh Off the Boat. His Taiwanese-Chinese restaurant is called Bao House. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media where we await a bow stuffed with orange intestines. And now, fittingly, it's time for the main course,
2: where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. Yeah, some more food. Uh, Brendan, so a friend saw something at a San Francisco restaurant recently. Okay. Yeah, It was a bottle of the hot sauce sriracha Mm -hmm. on which a genius had scrawled the words, hipster ketchup. (laughs) Which I love. I'm sure some hipsters use Heinz ironically. I'm sure of that. Yeah, But it is true. You will now find that red plastic sriracha bottle with, you know, the picture of a rooster on it in cool eateries everywhere. In fact, it is so popular that people are counterfeiting it, according to a post this week on the blog Food Republic. So I called up Randy Clemens, author of The Sriracha Cookbook, to talk about this. I started, though, by asking him, what's in that familiar red bottle?
9: so the sriracha we know and love is made here in california by a company called Fong foods and it's actually uh coming up on its 30th anniversary this year it's made from jalapenos garlic sugar salt and vinegar and it's just it's an excellent hot sauce that i think has gotten uh, a heck of a lot of popularity a lot of people are calling it hipster sauce but i mean you can find a thai style of hot sauce uh, in walmart i think you could say it's made a name for itself
2: but this is so popular now that it's worth it for somebody to counterfeit it? Is that really true? Uh,
9: well, there's a lot of people who do look-alike knockoffs. There was uh, a case a few years ago where someone was actually counterfeiting it, like literally passing it off as being from Hoi Fong Foods. But there are some other people that just make their products to look like Hoi Fong Foods Sriracha. So you'll see it with a different animal on the front. You know, there was a the one with the unicorn that kind of got popular recently, and.
2: Um, I kind of want to find that, just to have
9: it. Yeah, well, and then there are other brands from Thailand. There's one called Cock Brand that's, you know, kind of a play off of the rooster, but it's got a different bird on front on the front. They look strikingly similar to the same design of the bottle, but probably just enough uh, so they wouldn't be in trouble.
2: What What should we look for that we we know that we're getting the real deal?
9: You want to look for the green cap. So you're looking for the bottle with the rooster on it. That tells you it's Hoi Fong Foods, and it should say Hoi Fong Foods right on the front. But you want to look for that green cap, and they do have a, a laser etched date on each one of the bottles. It's either packaged by or a best by date. Let's take a look. It's a uh, you're looking for a best before date that's laser. Are etched on each one of the bottles, and that tells you it's from Hoi Fong Foods.
2: But now here's the thing: so, so there are these counterfeits srirachas that are made to look like Hoi Fong Foods sriracha, but. I was surprised to learn that Sriracha is not a brand name. It is actually a type of sauce, and Hoifang does not have a corner on the market on it. There are others.
9: Uh, That's correct. It's actually a Thai style of hot sauce. There's a town in Thailand called Sriracha, and um, having gone there, I can tell you the actual hot sauce that comes from Sriracha is very different. What we know here is more of a condiment that we squeeze on top of things. There, it's more of a dipping sauce. It's a little thinner. It's a little sweeter. Very, very different styles. What makes it sriracha, if they all taste different. Typically, it's the same five ingredients. Um, you've got the pickled jalapenos and garlic, sugar, vinegar, and salt. Basically, it's a fermented chili and garlic sauce that's been pureed.
2: So, so it's the fermented part that makes it different than, say, you know, Tabasco.
9: Yeah, and, and you know, Tabasco is a it's more of a vinegar-based sauce that's barrel-aged. This is fermented. So you've got, you've got this kind of uh, heat from the peppers, a little bit of pungency from the fermented garlic, sweetness from the sugar, and, of course, the salt. So that's what I think really makes Makes it, is that it's like touching all the sensation spots on your tongue. It's more
2: umami than it is hot, in a way.
9: It's everything. It's my life. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you said that with a certain reverence that's almost frightening.
9: My first taste of it was probably about 15 years ago, and I still have some every day. I eat it all the time. But, right? And yet I don't see any holes in your tongue. That's amazing. I've, I've built up a tolerance, and I can I can take quite a bit now. So
2: All right, so we're going to get um, a Thai style, and we're going to get one of the ones made in America, and we'll go check them out. Sounds good. All right, we are at Deet Thai restaurant, just up the street from the market. And we're about to have way more hot sauce than is probably wise. Uh, I've got my three puddles of sriracha. We've got Lee Kum Kee. And then we've got the two different versions of...
9: Porkwan brand.
2: And we've got both the, and I hope I've put them in the right order, I believe. We have the medium here and the strong here to the right of it. First of all, why why they actually look different, why?
9: With the Lee Kum Ki, they may be using garlic powder, which the Hoi Fong Foods brand does as well, so you get a little bit more um, texture from that. And then with the Por Kwan brand, the Thai-style sauces are always a little more liquid. All right,
2: I'm gonna start with the uh, Lee Kum Ki, and I'm gonna dip some fried tofu in this. Oh, I like it. Uh-oh, I may actually like it a little bit more than the Hoi Fong, that's unfortunate because I'm not going to find this as, in as many places as the Hoi Fong, unfortunately.
9: Actually, sorry, I'm eating tofu. Um, actually, the Lee Kum Ki you can find fairly easily now because the Hoi Fong Foods version has a couple additives that don't uh, let it be sold in Whole Foods. So you can find the Lee Kum Ki brand in a lot of Whole Foods markets. Awesome. And it'll be twice as expensive, therefore. Most likely, yes. Great. <laughs> so I, I
2: would like to actually eat a lot more of that, but I'm afraid because it, it's, it's a little spicy. It's not too bad. But I don't want to devastate my uh, palate too early in the process. So now I'm going to go in what I hope is the medium pork kwan sauce. Crazy. It is so completely different. It's a lot sweeter. It's almost a little bit like the... Um, Sweet sauce you sometimes get with a little red pepper flakes in it to dip egg rolls in?
9: Yeah, the sweet chili sauce. What you'll find besides the texture change is that they also use different peppers, so you can get a very different flavor. Here, the Hoi Fong Foods brand uses red jalapenos because that's what grows here in California. They use California-grown peppers. In Thailand, they use two different kinds of peppers. There's one called uh, Prick Chi Fa and Prick Chi Nu.
2: Are any srirachas really like all-encompassingly hot?
9: You're really not going to find anything that's going to scorch your face off. It's why so many people like it. It's, it's got a good level of heat that hangs out, but it's, it's not going to do any damage. Kind of like hipsters. That's right. They hang out. No damage.
2: And, Brendan, after doing that taste test, I now have a liquor cabinet's worth of sriracha bottles in the backseat of my car. So anyone out there looking to make a gigantic trough of fried rice or something,
0: hit me up. Hit I'm,
2: me I'm here for you.
0: (laughs) But don't hit your car because that stuff's combustible. You have to be
2: careful out there. I had not thought of that. That's dangerous for me.
0: Folks, we're going to take a break. Coming up, we learn about the rock drummer who put the bad in bad boy. Mm. And we get advice from a woman who
2: drinks for a living. It's a better idea than it sounds when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner
0: Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm
2: Rico Galliano. Later, we'll hear a brand new tune from the band Blue Hawaii. And in a few minutes, filmmaker Jay Bulger tells us about one of rock's greatest drummers and worst human beings. He broke my nose with a cane. Wow.
1: Yeah.
0: But now, to make sure that we don't become horrible people,
2: it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is writer Rosie Schapp. You may have heard her on This American Life. She has published articles about everything from poetry to soccer, but she is probably best known as a columnist for the drink section of the New York Times Magazine, covering bar culture and all things boozy. She also tends bar on occasion in Brooklyn. This week Rosie released her memoir Drinking with Men about some of the 13,000 hours she figures <laughs> she has spent in bars. That's a lot of hours. Wow. And Rosie, we are glad you survived that to join us today. Thanks for Thank being here. Thank you so much. So the book is kind of it's both a coming of age story and also a, a celebration I would say of, of bar camaraderie sort of. I think so. When did you know that finding the perfect bar would be your life calling?
8: Well, it's hard to say exactly when I, I recognized that moment, uh, but I've been deep in bar culture since I was a teenager, Uh-oh. and that's uh, sort of illegal. That was sort yeah. of illegal. It, you, you might not get away with that anymore. Times have really changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, I hit it at the at the right cultural moment
2: depending on your point of view I guess depending (laughs) on
8: your point of view from my point of view I did it worked out well for you so you know I started thinking about writing about bars probably about a decade ago and and it didn't really all come together until a few years ago
0: what's interesting about writing about bars is it's wide open because a lot of people at bars have grand ideas but not everyone wakes up on time and executes (laughs) them
8: (laughs) that's true smart and you managed to do it so in your opinion what makes the perfect bar the perfect bar um, I always gravitate toward a kind of Edward Hopper-esque corner bar with tiled floors that's been around for a long time. I love corner windows. I love day drinking more than any drinking, so beautiful afternoon light. Really? But, yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, I think day drinking brings out... Maybe the most interesting combination of drinkers: people who work unorthodox jobs, mm-hmm. people in in food service whose days either start really early or late, people with jobs like uh, iron workers. But
2: could it also bring out, you know, sort of human calamities?
8: <laughs> it certainly can. But in an in, in interesting, quieter way, I think than than you find at night in uh, a bar. See.
2: Not so much yeah. brawlers, maybe.
8: Not brawlers in the daytime. And there's no.
0: kind of like the feeling that you're br- there's a taboo, right? I mean, you're, oh mm-hmm. yeah,
8: you totally feel like you're getting. One over and that's very satisfying
2: <laughs> you mentioned right on what speaking of calamities you mentioned right on page one that as a bartender and as hanging out in bars you've had to be kind of a counselor at times sure and you say you had to quote referee a debate about whether an inebriated couple should stay together or break up Oh
8: yeah oh there, there's been more than one of those actually <laughs> yeah.
0: well then maybe you can help our listeners with their I questions hope so. Are you Ready?
8: i'm ready i'm gonna try this
0: first question comes from jr in la J.R. asks, Sometimes I feel like the rudest, pushiest people get their drinks first at crowded bars. What gives? What's a good, classy way to get a bartender's attention? You know, so that I can stake my claim when it's my turn. Such a good question. It, it is, is a, a classic. It's a classic. It is a
8: classic. And, and the first thing I'd like to tell Jr is that those rude agro-pushy people at bars are going to die unhappy deaths. <laughs> They're going to be friendless and lonely and miserable at the very end. That's cold comfort, though. No, yeah. you know what? I, I actually don't find it cold. I find it comforting. <laughs> um, I know as a bartender the last person I serve is that loudmouth brandishing his credit card. Mm. I don't even care if he's the first person lined up at the bar. <laughs> I want to see someone calm and patient, tries to make eye contact with me, I give that person a little nod to yeah. to let them know I'm not ignoring them. I'll be with him or her as soon as I can. And I think that person's life in that bar, should she or he become a regular, they're going to be so much better served in the end.
2: But see, yeah. you in that story are reacting in the way that I would hope a bartender would react. But what do you do if the bartender isn't giving you a nod? They're just head down. Yeah. not Well, noticing. you're in the wrong bar, man.
8: Well, that's the other thing I was going to say, Jr. try to avoid those really crowded bars. Mm. Because for any bartender, even a great one who's completely in the weeds, mm. um, you can't always give the kind of really great personal service that mm. I think bartenders enjoy. So, JR could find a, a calmer, quieter, less crowded bar. But what if uh, he likes that bar?
9: Well, well, well then his
8: question <laughs> doesn't make sense JR to, to me anymore. With... Me, what, what guys, about... I'm
2: JR. I just want
8: you to... <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering about that. All right,
0: That's not and, I, yeah, and I'm the loud mouth that gets served before Rico. <laughs> no, what Uh, what about tipping early? Does that help? Uh, like, you What know, if you, uh, you get a drink and you usually it's a dollar a drink or maybe 20% well, of a Fancy. A
8: dollar a drink since 1985. So maybe I, that I said, too. I said, or 20 percent right. depending right, right, on where that's you're at. Better, yeah. But if you do that early, say
0: you put, you know, a big tip early, are you going to get more attention you later? Know, that, that that feels dirty to me. <laughs> Agreed. That feels dirty. I'm glad dirty. you agree. I'm,
2: I'm not impressed with that. Well, all right. So Jr., the advice that I would have is make sure that Rosie is your bartender. <laughs> uh, here's Alexander in Chicago, and Alexander writes, "I'm a guy in my 20s, and I like sweet, often colorful cocktails." <laughs> I catch lots of flack for my drink choices. I'm curious, what's with gender stigmas Mm. and drinking? Justified Mm. or no? Woody mm. retorts that he could use? Good question, Alexander. Uh, are,
8: are you two also tempted to call him Brandy Alexander? <laughs> Sorry. Now, now um, his friends
2: will if they hear this. We're now not, ala- we're
8: not allowed I've to just, insult our guests, <laughs> I've just okay? made everything even worse. <laughs> um, you know, it's totally true. I know when I lived in Ireland, I had a boyfriend at the time who ordered Shandies, you know, combo yeah. of beer and 7-Up, yeah. often regarded as a girl's drink. Mm, and uh, I always just had Guinness. Mm-hmm. So if we put an order in at the bar invariably, I'd get served the Shandy, he'd yeah. get served the Guinness. So these things do happen. But, you know, if his friends find it kind of charming and funny, I think he needs to just own it completely All right. and say, you know, this bright blue Curacao <laughs> iced cocktail <laughs> gives me great pleasure. Yeah. And this is my thing. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah,
0: my, my sister is a Raspberry Cosmo lady. And, uh-huh. I, and I'm more of a classic martini guy uh-huh. or bourbon. And at first... I have to admit, maybe it embarrass, but no, like that's who she is. She sure, feels good of having a drink. But sometimes, if you go to a dive bar and you order one of those drinks, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
8: Much. My dad was the kind of guy who'd go to a diner on the highway in the middle of nowhere and order like the filet of soul almondine. <laughs> <laughs> like, you've got to be kidding me! You know, you should read a, read a restaurant, read a bar, and just know that in certain places you're not going to get that perfect old fashioned.
0: All right. right, so we have another question, and this is another kind of gender question about bars comes from julia in azusa california what's the proper etiquette for girls accepting drinks from guys they're not interested in right.
8: julia julia do you want
0: rico and i to leave so you guys can talk?
8: <laughs> i feel like i feel like i need a moment with julia okay. <laughs> julia i'm guessing you don't need a free drink so bad My first impulse is to decline it. Mm -hmm. I think what can really prevent these kinds of delicate situations, I think a real gentleman always asks through the bartender. Mm -hmm. Uh. If a guy is in a bar and wants to buy a woman or another guy a drink – do it through the bartender, and that way the pressure is off.
0: Yeah. But sometimes it happens that the drink gets delivered, and they yeah. say, this is from that person over there. Right. And then and, what? You,
8: you're going to waste a drink? Right. Well, I think the bartender messed that one up. Mm. Um, <laughs> you should ask for it. Frankly. <laughs> yes, always. Or it's just too much But pressure. I have to
0: say, this is, This happened to me once, and it's nice getting a $12 glass of wine for free.
8: Well, so... Some people are a little easier than others, Brendan. What can I say? I, I hope you enjoyed that glass of wine. Yeah, but the conversation
0: yeah. was awkward, I do. Yeah. Have to admit. But it was kind of cool having a woman buy a drink, I'll say.
8: Yeah, that's Speaking you know,
2: that's... of gender roles, <laughs> ladies, if you see Brendan, just order that's away. Right.
0: Easy
9: peasy. All, all it takes <laughs> is don't a even, glass of wine. You
0: not have to ask the bartender.
9: <laughs> right.
2: All right, Rosie Shepp,
0: her new memoir is called Drinking with Men. Yeah. Thanks for helping uh, answer our oh, listeners' etiquette questions. You're welcome. Author and bartender Rosie Schapp, her new memoir is called Drinking With Men. She
2: also writes and blogs about bar culture for The New York Times. And since asking a bartender for advice isn't always the best strategy, we encourage you to send any etiquette questions you might have directly to us, and we will share them with someone nominally qualified to answer, maybe. You can reach us at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Just click contact.
0: Or you can contact us via our hotline, a.k.a. the phone at my cubicle, The number is 213-621-3554. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we learn about a dinner party-worthy topic. Today the subject is Beware of Mr. Baker, a new documentary about the drummer Ginger Baker. Our teacher is the director of the film, Jay Bolger. And Jay, thanks for joining us. I'd wager that a lot of people have heard Ginger's music but don't know who he is. Tell them who Ginger Baker is, because people don't recognize that name. What would you say?
10: Ginger Baker is the original rock and roll madman junkie drummer superstar. How come a lot of people don't know his name? Because the most famous band he was in was Cream, and they were only around for two years. Okay. I think in his day, he was the most famous drummer by far. The animal from The Muppets is based on him. I mean, he's, uh, he was so famous. Is that? I always thought it was Keith Moon. I mean, he's red hair. and he's. he's that's so, it? I didn't know. That. Red hair. I think it's a composite between the two of them. He's got yeah. Keith Moon's eyebrows. But I mean, he's this red, <laughs> look, he's this red flaming yeah, drummer. Yeah, that's true. I mean.
0: Well, in the movie, it's clear that he's still very much loved in the music community. Um You speak with Eric Clapton, Steve Winwood, Stuart Copeland, and, you know, they say that he's one of the best drummers they've ever played with. Yeah. What is it about Ginger's playing that makes it so special? There were there were a lot of great drummers back then.
10: He was a jazz drummer, and he's older. He's seventy three, so the other people from that era, who's compared to, are younger than he is, and they come from more of an R and B background. Mm-hmm. Ginger came from more of an improvisational jazz background, and he was a professional musician at age fifteen, and. Played in you know many of jazz bands.
0: You make clear in the film his heroes are Max, Max Roach, Tony R- Williams, R- Art Blakey.
10: Blakey. The jazz greats yeah. don't know who Bonham is, yeah. but they all played <laughs> with Ginger Baker.
0: So in the movie, it's clear that he's a good drummer. The other thing that's clear is that he's a horrible person. Yes. Um, Talk about his character traits and some of his bad
10: behavior. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, look, uh, he grew up, he was born into Nazis bombing his house. He grew up in bomb shelters. His dad went off to World War II and was killed by Nazis in Greece and Churchill's folly. They created a monster. (laughs) <laughs> and then he got this letter from his dad and it said, if you're reading this, I'm dead. I've got one piece of advice for you. Learn to use your fists. They will be your best friend. And it's like a comic book. I mean, the guy's from a different time. Yeah. And you know what? If he's a horrible person, then so are both of my grandparents who <laughs> both just didn't have any time for both. Bull-
0: I'm not the one <laughs> who
10: calling him a horrible person.
0: People in your film are calling him a horrible sure, person, and I'll sure. say, look, there's a distinction. I don't think he's evil. i I don't think he's evil, no. but he's certainly not good. I think he's he would say good. that. No. And let's just hit some of the hi- the highlight reel. He left his first wife oh, with his daughter. Terrible things. Happen. His daughter's friend. He oh, right. every. He was a bad businessman. Like he was a bad bandmate. He broke my nose with a cane. And the opening scene of
10: the film is he. Hits you in the face with he's his cane just... after you've been... But he's like, uh, you know, he's like Kurtz from, uh, you know, Heart of Darkness. I mean, he's like, <laughs> he's right out he's of... Certainly
0: unpleasant. He has a pattern of moving to places, creating a life for himself, and then abandoning that life and burning the bridges. Let's talk about Africa. Uh, after Cream ended and some of his other projects crashed, he just leaves everything behind and he goes to Africa. Right. Why did he go there?
10: The first time he drove to Africa, he was at a gas station and he had a Jensen FF. And, uh, which is, I'm sorry. that's Which a... is like a Lamborghini, but from the, okay. you know, the early 60s. And this is in, he's in England? Or? He's in England. Yeah. And uh, somehow it comes up that, you know, that there's something going on in Africa and there's this music and he hears it. And he just starts driving and he drives this Jensen FF as far as Algeria, <laughs> whereupon he sees this you know, really beautiful girl, and he gets distracted and drives the car off a cliff. I have footage of the car having been driven off the cliff. And he's like, I need a different car to drive to Africa. So he goes back and he gets the first, like, I think it was the number fifth actual of the first Range Rover ever produced. And he drove that first Range Rover across the Sahara and uh, went to Africa. And he stayed there for seven years where he built a recording studio and single-handedly captured all of this music that we now are coming. Yeah, like, now coming to vote, yeah. It's unbelievable. You know, the fellow Broadway play, etc.
0: It seems like, at least watching the film, like England, he wasn't really feeling comfortable in, but Africa, he did feel comfortable. He, he wasn't and he doing drugs well, and he was blossoming. Okay, was down. that it? Because he had a very, he had a heroin habit in a England. A terrible
10: heroin habit. He said the other day in an interview with The Guardian that he, he got off heroin 39 times in his life or something. Anyway, still on opiates now. He's 73, so go figure, but you know like everywhere he eventually things go wrong
0: the movie starts with johnny rotten johnny Lydon, mm-hmm. front, you know, sex pistols frontman, and he says uh ginger baker he stands for something in life that probably most of you do not right what is he talking about
10: um what does ginger baker stand for i think he stands for perfection at all costs and i think he stands for non-compromise and i think you know whether you uh, like him or dislike him you have to respect the fact that there there are people in this world like he doesn't compromise i compromised this morning you know i did like <laughs> 10 times i compromised yeah, but that's how you live in a civilized society i know but it's also kind of cool to think that like <laughs> maybe there what would it be like i you know hypothetically if you, you didn't wouldn't even to, be here you'd be ginger baker you'd <laughs> have to be so good at the drums that you get away with it
0: Rico, a little update. All right, go Before aboard. we started taping that interview, uh, Jay told me that he and Ginger attended a screening of the film at the British Film Institute in London. It's a fun date. Yeah, Sounds sort nice. of. <laughs> With a mean guy. Ginger has never seen the film, and he didn't watch it then. But backstage during the screening, he lit up a cigarette, and the president of the Film Institute asked him to put it out. Uh-oh. Because, you know, otherwise fire alarms would go off. This doesn't sound good. At which point Ginger, charming as ever, told him to... <clears throat> And then uh, threatened him with a bottle.
2: Wow. <laughs> but, you know, but he only threatened, right? He didn't actually hit him. That's true. With the bottle. He's making progress. Yeah, of <laughs> a sort.
5: At the party, she was kindness in the heart
2: All right, that is the dinner party for this week, folks. Next week on the program, we will be speaking with Oscar-nominated actress Jessica Chastain, star of Zero Dark Thirty, and of the new horror film Mama. Oh, just hearing that title gives me the...
0: Jackson Musker is not the mama. He's the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Yes. Our intern is Tamika Adams. Our other intern could be you. Check out our website,
2: dinnerpartydownload.org, for more details. Yes, please. And thanks also to Brendan Willard, Peter Clowney, and our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace. And now we leave you with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties.
7: The
0: group is called Blue Hawaii, although they hail from Montreal and sound nothing like Elvis. Here's a track from their forthcoming album called Try to Be.
2: Try to Bon Appetit.
3: I watch as my big dreams walk behind me They trick, they scheme They tease Felt like as a young
2: For attending the dinner party, I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newham. And, and next know, week on Public Radio's Business Show, Marketplace, we look at um, do-it-yourself collateralized debt obligations. What the- We ask if corporations. You know, and people someone thought, thought this was a good idea. This is radio. Why is he waving so his arms
0: like that? Don't know. And finally, we'll take a look at banks' new breathing fees.